Amen. This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. And with this as the focus, well, I'd like you to open your Bibles now to Job chapter 23. And as you make your way to the 23rd chapter of Job, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. I want to remind you once again that this book is centered around the trials and the troubles of a God-fearing man named Job. And while it's true that Job was a man of integrity who feared God and shunned evil, well, it's also true that the Lord allowed a fallen angel known as Satan to put Job's faith to the test. And he did this by allowing Satan to attack the family and the flocks and the flesh of his servant Job. And as a result, well, his sons and his daughters, they perished in a horrific windstorm. On the same day, his oxen and his donkeys were stolen by a band of raiders who, um, you know, just uh, were out there looking for, uh, you know, uh, uh, maybe a, a shopping center to, to, to go in and steal stuff from or looking for, you know, some way to easily make money. <clears throat> and uh, not that we see anything like that happening in the world today, but... Uh, but yeah, so you know, these guys came in and, and uh, took his property and killed uh, his servants. And then fire fell from the sky and burned up his sheep and you know, many of his servants. And finally, Job's flesh ended up being struck with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And no doubt that Job was experiencing a great deal of suffering during this period of time. And as if that wasn't bad enough, Job's wife then turned against him as she encouraged him to curse God and die. Thanks, honey. And uh, not, not only her, though, but you know, his three closest friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, uh, they also became Job's miserable comforters as they took their turns presenting a series of unfounded allegations and false accusations against Job. I want to remind you that it was in our study last week. There we found Eliphaz presenting Job with a third round of accusations. And now here in our text tonight... Well, we find the first half of Job's response to his friend Eliphaz. And as we make our way through the text before us tonight, well, we're going to soon see here that Job was himself still confused about the reason for why he was suffering. Now, remember, he was completely convinced that the, accusation of, uh, the accusations of his friends were entirely wrong. One reason why was due to the fact that Job was a man who was carefully living a life that was pleasing to the Lord, not only that, though, but he was quick to offer sacrifices for any sins that he may have committed. Therefore, there was no reason for him to think that the Lord was punishing him for some sort of unrepentant sin. And with that being the case, well, Job was wondering why in the world was the Lord punishing him in this way. What he failed to realize was that uh, he wasn't being punished. No, instead, his faith was being put to the test. And what this means is that Job's perspective of his own situation, well, it was, it was just as distorted as his friends. His friends were accusing him of doing something wrong, and he was accusing God of punishing him for no reason. They were all confused. And at the end of the day, you know, they all believed that God was the one who was actively punishing Job when, in fact, he wasn't. One reason for this belief was due to the fact that these guys had embraced what I believe to be a theological construct, which seems to be based in the belief that everything that happens is divinely determined by our Creator. 
In other words, Job and his friends seem to have embraced some form of theological determinism, which is based on the belief that God determines every event that occurs throughout the history of the world. And according to those who embrace theological determinism, every single atom in the entire universe is being controlled by God. And listen, if you get bit by a mosquito, well, then God was the one who sent the mosquito to bite you. And if you get, you know, if you win the lottery, God was the one who led you to buy that specific lotto ticket on that specific day. And if your Wi-Fi goes down in the middle of a movie, well, God did that too. And there's people who live like this, who, who, who imagine that, you know, every single thing that happens to them, it's God. God did that. In the case of Job, well, Job was convinced that the Lord was the one who was sovereignly causing him to suffer. And as we make our way through the text before us tonight, we're going to spend some time considering Job's perspective as we set out to explore the difference between uh, that which God sovereignly allows and that which the Lord has sovereignly predetermined. Well, with this as the focus, let's turn our attention now to the 23rd chapter of Job. Here we find Job, he's responding to the accusations of his friend Eliphaz. And if you would look with me there at Job 23, we'll begin our study at verse 1. Here we learn that Job answered and said, Even today my complaint is bitter. My hand is listless because of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Well, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Job. He's responding to the point that Eliphaz was making in the previous chapter. And I'll remind you, it was actually in our study last week. There we found Eliphaz informing Job that the Lord wasn't looking for human counselors regarding his decision to punish Job. Eliphaz was effectively saying, look, you know, I know know you got your arguments that you want to present to God, but listen, God doesn't care. God doesn't care. God's already made up his mind. He's already decided these things. He's already determined these things. He's already decreed these things. And he's not looking for input from you, Job. And while it's true that the Almighty does not need our help when it comes to his plans and purposes, well, it's also true that the Lord wasn't the one who was punishing Job. This wasn't according to God's plan for Job, but what God was allowing Satan to do to Job. And with that being the case, listen, Job's bitter complaints against the heavy hand of the Lord here, well, it was actually based on the false assumption that the Almighty was the one who was actively punishing him. And it's for this reason that Job sought the judgment seat of the Lord. He wanted to know, where is the judgment seat of God? I've got arguments to make. He wanted to go and present his case to the righteous judge of heaven and earth. As a matter of fact, notice with me again there, beginning at verse 3 again. Here, Job declares, oh, that I knew where I might find him. Really, Job? What are you going to (laughs) do? If you knew where to find find God, what what, what are you going to do? He says there in in the second half of verse 3, that I might come to his seat. I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Job is thinking like a lawyer here that he's going he's gonna to approach the, the, the bench. He's going to ap- approach the judge's bench and present his case. Job is seeking the judgment seat of the Lord. And the reason why is because he wanted to present his arguments to the almighty judge. And, and, and Job was not only convinced that he was, he, he was in no way deserving to suffer in this sort of way, but he was also convinced that the Lord was the one who was punishing him. And it's sad to say that he was wrong on both accounts. 
He was wrong on both accounts here because, listen, God wasn't the one who was punishing Job. And Job wasn't as innocent as he believed himself to be. I'll remind you that we are all sinners. We're all, you know, fallen people. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard. And what this means is that we all deserve the, the just punishment of the Lord. If you want to come before the Lord on the basis of what you deserve, you're going to walk away sorely disappointed as you discover that what we deserve is punishment. Thankfully for us, our sovereign Lord predetermined a perfect plan which provides every sinner with the opportunity to be saved from the punishment that we deserve. The Lord predetermined a perfect plan to provide sinners with an opportunity to be saved by faith in the atoning sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This was precisely the point that the Apostle Peter was making when he described Christ Jesus as the sacrificial lamb who was foreordained before the foundation of the world. And here's how Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1. He declares here, You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot. He was indeed foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. According to Peter here, the atoning sacrifice of our Savior was foreordained before the foundation of the world. What this means is that the Lord is the one who predetermined to provide sinners with a substitutionary sacrifice so that we might be saved. The Apostle John confirms this in Revelation chapter 13 where he describes Jesus as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Incredible. Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, before our creator spoke forth the words by which the universe was created, he had already determined, he predetermined to provide us with a way to be saved through the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus Christ. And while that decision was made before the foundations of the world, it was carried out there on the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul also presented the same basic idea in Acts chapter 17 where he assured the philosophers there in Athens that God has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And to what end? Well, Paul says it there in verse 27. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. In light of these verses, we can be certain here that our Creator has determined some very specific things. This not only includes the pre-appointed ages of the earth and the boundaries of where people would dwell, but this also includes the predetermined plan by which sinners can be saved from the punishment that we deserve. And listen, those who trust in the sacrificial lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world... Well, these are the people who are set free from the judicial condemnation of the law. And not only that, but those who trust in in, in the sacrifice of our Savior Jesus Christ, well, we are now invited to boldly approach the throne of God's grace. 
This was precisely the point that Paul made in Hebrews chapter 4. It's there where he declares, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly, where? To the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Rather than searching for the judgment seat of the Lord, like Job was, rather than searching for that judgment seat so that we can try to defend our innocent, uh, innocence and make our case and present our arguments. and Don't do that. Don't, 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 don't go looking for the judgment seat of God. You're going to find out that you are deserving of judgment. Instead of looking for the judgment seat of the Lord, let's instead go to the throne of grace where Jesus Christ is ready to help us in our time of need. Those who stand before the judgment throne of God are going to be judged. But those who approach the Lord Jesus there at the throne of grace will receive the mercy and the grace that we need. We'll receive the help that we need from the Lord because he is merciful. Sadly, Job doesn't seem to be looking for a savior. No, instead, he seems to be looking for the judge, so that he can present his arguments, so that he can defend his innocence. And with this as our focus, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 23. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 5, here Job declares, I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in his great power? No, but he would take note of me. There the upright could reason with him, and I would be delivered forever from my judge. Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's helping his friends to understand that his search for the judgment seat of the Lord was based on his belief that the omniscient one was well aware of his innocence. He's saying, hey, God knows everything, and so you know, clearly he's going to take my side in this case. And it's for this reason that he wanted to plead his case before the righteous judge of heaven and earth. And now, I want to take a moment to remind you that Job was, in fact, an upright and blameless man. But what does that mean? Does that mean he was perfect? Does that mean he was sinless? I assure you that Job was not a sinless man. And the reason I I know this for certain is because we are all born under the curse of original sin. We're all born under the curse of original sin. And not only that, but we've all sinned against the Lord. We're not only born with the sin nature, but we've actively sinned against the Lord. We've all fallen short of his glory. What this means then is that Job wasn't blameless in the sense that he was sinless, but instead Job was blameless because he was presenting the Lord with the the proper atoning sacrifices, which were actually temporary placeholders that were pointing to the Lamb of God. And therefore, Job was effectively trusting in the sacrifice of our Savior through offering atoning uh, sacrifices, which were symbols of our Savior's uh, sacrifice. Sadly, though, Job here seems to have been shifting his focus from the humility of faith in these atoning offerings, and that, you know, he seems to be shifting his focus from the humility of faith to the foolishness of pride. And so rather than searching for our Savior at the throne room of grace, he was determined to go and stand before the judgment seat so that he could present his case before the righteous judge of heaven and earth. I want to remind you that it was back in verse 4 of this chapter 
uh, there in verse 4, he declares, I would present my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. Man, that, that's, that's quite the claim. That's, that's quite the position to think that once I find the judgment seat of God, I'm going to have the right arguments to present to the Lord, and the Lord's going to be like, oh, yeah, Job, you're right. You know, I made a mistake. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Job wanted to make his case for his own righteousness, and he would only discover that he had no righteousness of his own. Sadly, though, he assured his friends that he would be able to convince the Lord that that the Lord should deliver him from the judgments that he was enduring. And to further make my case here, let's consider how Job goes on to describe his own innocence here in our text tonight. If you would look with me there again at Job chapter 23, we'll pick up our study at verse 8. Here Job declares, look, I go forward, but he is not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he works on the left hand, I cannot behold him. When he turns to the right hand, I cannot see him, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Now, here in these verses, we find Job, he's describing, first of all, his own finite knowledge as he acknowledges the fact that he wasn't able to really locate the judgment throne of the Lord. He looks to the, to the left, he looks to the right, he looks forward, he looks back, he just can't find where the judgment seat of the Lord is. And at the same time, though, he goes on to acknowledge the omniscience or, or the you know, all-knowingness of the Lord by assuring his friends that the Lord could see every step that he was taking. The Lord knew every single step that he ever took. Not only that, but Job also goes on to insist here that, you know, he was a man who was faithfully remaining on the path of righteousness. And that is to some degree true because, I mean, he he continued to offer the right sacrifices for any sins that he may have committed. But again, that doesn't mean he's sinless. It just means that he's blameless in the fact that he's keeping up with the atoning sacrifices that were prescribed. As a matter of fact, it's uh, there in verse 11, there Job assures his friends that, that he was faithfully following in the footsteps of the Lord. That's what he's telling them. I'm going to be fine to, to, to stand before the judgment seat of God because I've never deviated from the path of the Lord. Really? What are you offering sacrifices for then? The only reason to offer a sacrifice is because you've deviated from the path of the Lord. He also informs them that he was refraining from turning aside to a path that would deviate from the perfect will of the Lord. And we know that that's not the case because no one can do this perfectly except Jesus Christ. It's also there in verse 12 where Job went on to elaborate on this claim by insisting that he had never departed from the commandment of the Lord. Now, this is being written here, uh, and, and this, this takes place before Moses received the Ten Commandments. And, and so, while we don't know exactly the commands that the Lord gave to the people during this age, uh, we do know from this that God had delivered to them their commands and, and you know, given them a dispensation of information that they were expected to maintain. And, and Job is saying, I've done it. Whatever God was requiring of them, he's done it. And then there in the second half of the verse, Job declares, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. 
In other words, Job was certain that the Lord would confirm his obedience to, to you know, the words that he had received from the Lord, that he was walking in perfect obedience. That's what he truly believed. Now, with all this in mind, we must not fail to notice what Job says there in the middle of verse 8. I'm sorry, the middle of verse 10 there. It's there where he declares, you know, when he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. When God comes and tests me, he'll see that I'm as pure as gold. Seeing how gold was a picture of perfect purity during this day and age, you know, Job seems to have come to this conclusion that his spiritual purity was comparable to the purity of gold. And again, you know, Job was an upright man. Job was blameless in the sense that he was keeping up with the proper sacrifices, but he wasn't sinless. He, he wasn't as pure as gold. With all that being the case, you know, it seems to me here that Job was falling into the foolish trap of thinking that he had achieved some, you know, personal state of self-righteousness. And, you know, this really reminds me of my own experience because, you know, as a new believer, it was during that first year of my faith, the Lord was helping me to overcome many addictions that I had at that point in time. You know, I was addicted to drugs and alcohol and pornography and tobacco and all these sorts of things. And and the Lord was helping me to just, uh, you know, shed those things off. And I was uh, I was walking in victory over those things in that first year of my Christian faith. And and, and rather than realizing that the Lord was the one who was actually empowering me by the Holy Spirit to, to walk in the Spirit so that I don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, well, my focus started to shift. My focus started to shift from the humility of faith in God to the pride of personal righteousness. I started to look down on others who were still struggling with the same sins. As if like I had arrived because of something that I personally did. And look at all these jokers, not, not able to do what I'm doing, you know. And how sad is that? I was beginning to believe that I had somehow achieved a state of self-righteousness. And yet what I was failing to realize is that the pride that filled my heart was just as sinful as the addictions that I was no longer struggling with. My new addiction, pride. It was prideful to, to think this way, and it was sinful to think this way, you know, to, to imagine that I had achieved some self-righteousness when it was the Lord doing all this in me. With that, I want to remind you of the words of James, because it's possible that maybe there's some here tonight struggling in the same sort of way. And with that, I remind you again of what James says in James chapter 4. There he declares, God resists the proud. He doesn't say God resists the drug addict. He doesn't say God resists the, the alcoholic. He doesn't say God resists the, you know, the, 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 the person addicted to porn or the person still smoking cigarettes or these sorts of things. He says God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So, so there is a process of sanctification by which the Lord wants to free us from all of these sinful addictions, and yet it has to be on the path of humility and faith, not pride and self-righteousness. If you see yourself as better than the sinners around you, I encourage you to remember that but for the grace of God, there go I. 
Those who want to stand before the judgment throne of God in order to argue their case for some sort of self-righteousness, they'll only discover that God rejects the proud. But those who will seek our Savior Jesus there at the throne of grace will come to discover that God is happy to, to give grace to those who humbly trust in Jesus. And yeah, even if we continue to struggle with the sins that so easily ensnare us. And listen, this is according to the predetermined plan of the Lord. That's right, this is according to the predetermined plan of the Lord. I like the way that Paul put it in Ephesians chapter 1. It's verses 11 through 14 where he declares, In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being, notice, predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted. When? After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, to the praise of his glory. Christian, listen, the salvation of our Savior provides us with an everlasting inheritance, which, according to Paul here, was predetermined prior to the foundations of the world according to God's perfect plan. And while some are attempting to earn this inheritance through good works, Paul assures us that the guarantee of this inheritance isn't earned by works. It's received by faith in the gospel message of grace. And from this, we can see then that the Lord has predetermined a plan of salvation so that every sinner can be saved by faith in the substitutionary sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And not only that, but the Lord has also predetermined to give every person the best opportunity to trust in him. I'll remind you, it was back in Acts 17. We've already read these verses, but I want to take another look. Acts 17, verses 26 and 27, Paul declares, God has made... From one blood, every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwelling so that they should seek the Lord in the hopes that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. From this, we can see that God has predetermined to provide every person with the best opportunity for seeking the Lord all in the hopes that each person might reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any, any one of us. In other words, God has sovereignly predetermined to give every person on this planet the free will to seek and respond to the gospel message of grace. And what this means then is that every person is able to receive or reject the free gift of grace by which sinners are saved. With that being the case, you know, those who believe in hard determinism have embraced what I believe to be an unbiblical belief regarding the sovereignty of God. And to make my case, let's consider the final verses of this chapter. If you would look with me there at Job 23, we'll pick up our study at verse 13. Here, Job goes on to declare, but he is unique, and who can make him change? And whatever his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, I am afraid of him. For God made my heart weak, and the Almighty terrifies me, because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. 
Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Job, he's presenting his perspective regarding the sovereignty of God. And just to be clear, the sovereignty of God refers to God's omnipotence, uh, his omnipresence, and his omniscience uh, over the entirety of creation. Or, Or more simply put, God is infinitely in control of his creation in every way. Now, with this in mind, I want to take a closer look at Job's perspective of God's sovereignty, beginning with the infinite immutability of the Lord. And so look with me again there, beginning at verse 13. Here Job asks, but he is unique, and who can make him change? Now, here in the first half of this verse, we find Job, he's referring to the unique and unchanging nature of God. In other words, Job is describing the Lord as one of a kind, there's no other God out there. Like, like if you consider the, the infinity or infinitude of God, you know, if, if we consider you know, just how God uh, always has been, always is, always will be, how would you differentiate between this infinite God and another infinite God? Can, can, can you make a distinction between two infinite gods? You can't. And so those who believe in multiple gods, they're they're wrong because it's illogical to to imagine there being two infinite gods that can you can make a distinction between the two of them, right? So so he's saying, hey, God is unique. He's one of a kind. No other god like him. There are no other gods. And not only that, but he says that, you know, can anybody change him? In other words, the the Lord is unchanging. He's a one-of-a-kind, forever unchanging God. And in this, you know, we can agree that there is no other being like the true and living Lord. And, and seeing how he, he is an infinite being, well, then we can rejoice in knowing that he will always remain the same immutable being that he's always been. We should also consider what Job writes next here in the second half of verse 13. He goes on to declare, whatever his soul desires, that he does. In other words, whatever the Lord decides to do, he's able to do it. I'm sure we all recognize the frustration of wanting to do something and then not being able to do it. Uh, And, and, you know, this is a frustration that we've all experienced at some point in time. You know, I, I, you know, tried to eat the the Chunky's Four Horsemen hamburger one time and couldn't do it. I was very frustrated about it. I wanted my picture on the wall, even though my mouth was on fire, but uh, couldn't do it. God could, though. He could eat the four horsemen hamburger. But, uh, <laughs> but listen, everything he desires to do, he's able to do it. And, and the reason why is because he is the omnipotent or the all-powerful one who's always able to accomplish whatever he desires to do. But then Job, Job goes on here to elaborate on this in verse 14. There he declares, he performs what is appointed for me, and many, many such things are with him. Now, uh, this is really where Job's view of God's sovereignty gets a little bit tricky, you know, kind of like run DMC. But uh, in in order to understand the issue here, uh, we should take a moment to consider the meaning of the word appointed. You know, when when, when Job says he performs what is appointed for me, that Hebrew word rendered appointed, it speaks of that which has been decreed. And in the context uh, of, of this passage here, we're talking about divine decrees. We're talking about the divine decrees of the Lord. And, and when it comes to the divine decrees of the Lord, you know, there are those who insist that God 
unconditionally decrees every event that occurs in the history of the world. In other words, you know, they believe that God has decreed everything that has ever happened and everything that ever will happen. And, and, and in this, they make no room for God's permissive will, and, and instead they embrace a form of theological determinism which leaves us with a God who determines every decision that every person will ever make in every situation that will ever occur. So it's, not, it's never the case that God allows something to happen, but rather that God determined and predetermined that this thing would happen. Now just think about that for a moment. You know, If it's true that God is the one who sovereignly performs what was appointed for Job because that's what Job says, that God performs what was appointed for him. If that's the case, then what this means then is that God was the one who was forcing Job, predetermined Job to believe that the Lord was punishing him when in fact it was God who allowed Satan to come and uh, affect his life in, in, these, in these negative ways. Now, if hard determine is true, then we would have to ask, why would God force Job why would God predetermine Job to believe something that wasn't true about God? Why would God force Job to believe something that was not true about God? Not only that, but if God is the one who sovereignly performs what is appointed for every person, if we extend this out past Job to others like Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, why was God then predetermining Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar to falsely accuse Job of sins that he wasn't committing? Why was God forcing these three guys to come along and falsely accuse Job of things that weren't true? Furthermore, you know, if hard determinism is true and God appoints or decrees every single thing that ever happens, well then why did God force Satan? to go and attack the family, the flocks, and the flesh of Job. If hard determined is true, then God didn't allow Satan to go do this. God actually determined Satan to go and do this. Why would God do that? And listen, if all of this is true, then God was the one who forced Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, because let's just take it all the way back to the beginning. If hard determined is true and God decrees every event that ever occurs you know, within his creation, then why did he force Adam and Eve to go eat the fruit that he told them not to eat? Why would he do such a thing? And, and listen, if God is the one who forced Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, then they were only doing that which God determined them to do. And if they were only doing that which God determined them to do, then listen, there's no such thing as original sin. If hard determine is true, determinism is true, then there is no such thing as original sin because sin is that which is in conflict with the will of God. Think about that. Sin is that which is in conflict with the will of God. And if God determined Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, then eating the fruit was in or according to the will of God. That being the case, listen, hard determinism, which is based on this belief that God decrees every single thing that ever happens, well, listen, this would render the cross of Christ unnecessary at best. 
Because if God determined Adam and Eve to eat the forbidden fruit, then there's no original sin. And if there's no original sin, then what did Christ come to accomplish? Now listen, don't get me wrong, because I'm not making an argument against the sovereignty of God. I totally believe in the sovereignty of God. I just don't believe that those who embrace theological determinism are truly reflecting what the Bible means by the sovereignty of God. We must maintain the sovereignty of God. In other words, we must believe that God is the omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient one who is infinitely in control of his creation in every single way. And listen, I totally believe that God could have decreed a world in which every person is controlled like robots, you know, at, at, uh, at Amazon, you know, loading packages. He could have decreed a world in which every person, you know, just walks around just being completely controlled by every decision that he's made. He could have decreed that world. But did he? Could God, as a sovereign ruler, decree a different kind of world? Well, I certainly believe so. And according to the scriptures, I believe that he's sovereignly decreed a world that provides every person with the same opportunity to freely embrace the election that the Lord Jesus provides to those who trust in him. And at the same time, the Lord enables every person to freely reject the reconciliation that's being offered to every single sinner through the cross of Christ. With that being the case, it's important for us to realize that the Lord has sovereignly decreed a final destination for every person. I truly believe this. I believe that God has sovereignly decreed a final destination for every single person while also giving, giving every single person the freedom to choose which of those two destinations they end up at. Those who trust in Jesus, well, they receive an everlasting inheritance as we enter in the kingdom of God according to God's sovereign decree. And those who reject the Lord Jesus, well, they end up receiving everlasting condemnation as they pay for their sins in the lake of fire according to the sovereign decree of the Lord. In this way, we see how God is able to accomplish his sovereign will while simultaneously giving us the freedom of choice. Now, in light of these things, we should take a mo another moment here to consider the statement that Job goes on to make here in the final verses of this chapter. If you would, let's back up and begin reading once again at verse 15 here. After considering how God has, a, has purposely appointed these things that he believes that God is making him do here, he goes on to say in verse 15, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider this, in other words, when I consider how God is controlling me in these sorts of ways, when, when I consider the way that God has pointed me punishment, when I've done nothing wrong, he says, I'm afraid of him. For God made my heart weak. Not that his heart was weak, but he's saying, hey, God in his sovereignty, God according to his decree, made my heart weak. And the Almighty terrifies me because I was not cut off from the presence of darkness, and he did not hide deep darkness from my face. Here in these final verses, we find Job, he's expressing the fear that filled his heart as he considered the way that the sovereignty of God had robbed him of, uh, of the ability to, to deal with his whole situation by appointing these things to come upon him, though he feels like he didn't deserve it. 
And, and I, I struggle with similar ideas here when I, when I consider, you know, those who teach theological determinism and, and, you know, present us with a God who forces us to do things that he turns around and punishes us for. I, I'm like, what? That is a, that is a God to be feared in, in, a, in a very uh, unrighteous way. Now, I believe that the fear of the true and living God is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. But that's a respectful fear of a God who is righteous in all of his decisions. But when we factor in, you know, what Job was thinking here about, you know, the omniscience of God and the decrees of the Lord and, and his belief that he was keeping the commands of the Lord and yet still being punished by God for sins that he thought he wasn't committing and these sorts of things, well, it's no wonder that he was filled with fear as he considered the sovereignty of the Almighty. And with that, you know, if, if you've been led to believe in a God who has decreed irrational, unrighteous things from the foundations of the earth, and, and you're filled with fear as you consider that God, I just want to bring you back to some very simple biblical truths so that we can see that we ought to have a healthy, respectful fear of God while also resting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I, and I think that Jesus explains it best in John chapter 3. It's here where he declares, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. According to Jesus, whoever chooses to believe in him will not perish because in Christ we have everlasting life. And listen, I, I get it. There's a bunch of really smarty pants out there who want to talk about hard determinism and you know, get us all caught up in these deep things that, that chances are they don't even fully understand. And I would just bring you back to this simple truth. Pastor Chuck always used to say, don't give up the things that you do know for the things that you don't. And, and according to you know, solid biblical hermeneutics, it's the simple things that we use for foundations and then from there, we begin to consider the more difficult things, not giving up those more simple truths. Well, here is one of the simplest truths that we find in the entirety of scriptures. Don't lose sight of this. Don't lose sight of John 3, 16 through 18. But rather rest in the truth of this. Listen, those who reject Jesus, well, they're still living under the condemnation of the law while those who place their faith in Jesus are no longer condemned. And the reason why is Jesus already received the punishment that we deserve so that we can be set free from the condemnation of the law. And with all this in mind, I encourage you in closing, let's remember that these are the only two options that the Lord has predetermined. There's not a third option. If you think that people eventually get saved in hell, it's nowhere in the Bible you think that people eventually are annihilated in hell, no longer exist, I don't find those verses. I can find you lots of books from scholars that will tell you that, but I can't find that in the Bible. There's no third option. We either end up in the kingdom of God forevermore, 
or in the lake of fire forevermore. This is the predetermined plan of God. And also he's predetermined that we have the freedom of choice. And while I encourage every Christian who is resting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ to continue to rest in what Jesus accomplished, I also encourage every unbeliever to repent and receive by faith the free gift of God's grace so that you can use your free will to embrace the benefits of believing in the elect lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth. And that according to the predetermined plan of God. Let's pray.